If you've been with us the last few weeks as we've been in this short series that we've called Spiritual Authority, as we've looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we've looked at three aspects of of life, Um, true power, true authority, and now this morning we're going to look at true influence. And I'm happy that we're ending on this place. I'm happy that we get the chance to broaden out the box of what we're talking about Because I think it's easy to go, yeah, that's all well and good, but I don't have any position of authority. I look at my life and I don't have any place for power. But when we talk about influence, that talks inherently across the board about all of us, okay? Um, When we talk about authority, we tend to think about the people who are in charge. And when we talk about power, we tend to think about those who have some sort of energizing ability to make change. But when we talk about influence, we need to recognize how democratic influence is. Not not that it's equal, not that everybody influences in the same way, but that when we talk about a culture or a community or a family or an area, uh, that, that that is formed collectively. And so uh, there is influence open and available to everyone. Now, the context that we're talking about this morning involves some criticisms that Paul the Apostle is receiving from some new people who have shown up in the city of Corinth where Paul years earlier had planted a church. And so they're criticizing Paul and they're trying to distance the church from Paul and they're also trying to put themselves in positions of power, authority, and influence in the church. And so as Paul is both responding to these criticisms and quietly or subtly calling out them, uh, he also helps us to think through how we should feel about influence in our life. And here's why this matters. Okay, As Christians... God calls us to live our our lives, like we saw in our catechism this morning, in reference to him. There's a plan, there's a mission. As, As Paul says in another place, God has laid out good works before each one of us that we should walk in them. When Jesus ascended into heaven right beforehand, he spoke to his 12 disciples. He said, go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. He gave them a mission He gave them a job to do. When Paul is talking about his influence this morning, he's talking about his influence in that regard, his gospel influence, if you will, his influence as an apostle of Jesus Christ, his influence as a disciple who's seeking to make disciples. And that is a calling that we all as Christians share. Now, the reason why it's helpful to see what Paul goes through this morning is because when we take that idea, when we think about ourselves, for example, as missionaries, biblically, if you're a Christian this morning, you are a missionary, okay? Maybe your mission field is just your living room and the office space that you work in or the school that you attend and not some far-off distant place, but the whole world God has called us into, and that includes these places that are relatively close to home. Some of us are missionaries like the woman in John chapter 4, the woman at the well who doesn't have to go to another place, she just goes home, and that's where her ministry is, that's where her ministry begins. Even that word ministry, oftentimes we limit down to particular people who do the work, church work, 
and everyone else is outside of or beyond the confines of ministry. I would argue that that's a poor way to think about these things. Um, God has given us a mission in life to live for him. And that's true of each and every one of you in the context that you live. That's why this passage is very beneficial this morning for, for analyzing or assessing this concept of influence, okay? Gospel influence. Read the passage along with me, starting in chapter 10, verse 12, through the end of the chapter. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. Let's pray. When it comes to the opening, the public reading, the explaining, and the applying of your word, Father, you have given us great and precious promises. You have told us that this book is living and powerful. You have told us that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. You have told us that the Spirit will proclaim to the world uh, about sin and righteousness and judgment. And Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will speak of me. And I ask, Lord, that all of those promises would be fulfilled this morning, that you would work by your spirit, through your word, in our hearts, to your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. I think if we were to divide up the things going on into this passage, we would do it in two parts. Okay? There's two things that he deals with. First is this concept of influence that I've already referenced, and maybe you notice the word just shows up in our English translation of the Bible. It's clearly a concept that's here. But the other has to do uh, with these folks who are commending themselves and comparing themselves, right? And and so I, I feel the need this morning to connect the dot between those two things. And what I want you to recognize is that a primary method or means of influence in our world, and this includes today, involves credentials, involves uh, personal advertisement, involves comparison of abilities. And this is important for two reasons. One, because there's some folks, like Paul is talking about here, who are boasting and seeing themselves as a bigger deal than they are. But second, comparison works both ways. And so oftentimes, we disqualify ourselves from our own calling because of a comparison we've made with someone else. And so very practically, we think, when there are great pastors like so-and-so, when there's great preachers or great evangelists like so-and-so, 
I feel like there's no point in me even trying. I kind of wish they were just here. Okay? I wish they could just be here and do the work because then things would change. See, when we make comparisons, it goes in both directions, right? When it says that they measure themselves against themselves, it's easier to imagine them in a room and some of them are saying, well, I'm taller. And others are saying, well, I'm shorter, okay? And so it's really important that we nail down your qualifications for the area of influence that you have and also recognize at the same time this nasty version of influence extending that is just beyond the pale, of, uh, of morality. So, for example, the first criticism he gives of these folks here, and he does it a little bit ironically, he says, we don't dare, verse 12, to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. On a first read, you read that, and it almost sounds like he's saying, uh, saying well, we can't even compare. I mean, you guys are on such a different level. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put my name in the hat for what's going on. But he's actually convinced, as we'll see, that the standard of measurement they're using is absolutely irrelevant. And so they may have a high view of themselves, and he says, I don't even have to engage in this discussion. Okay. But I want you to notice that the primary criticism he makes of them in verse 12 is that they are self-commending. They're self-promoting. Okay. Here's a pet peeve I have about what Facebook has become. And don't, don't, jump, the, don't jump ahead here. This, I'm not actually talking about people now. I'm talking about clickbait. Okay? There are certain articles I will not read, and they are the ones that say, this video is going viral. Okay? If it was going viral, it doesn't need to be said. If you're saying it, you're trying to convince me, right? If the proclamation, the news becomes the fact that it's going viral, that's probably just a tool to promote this video. That self-promotion drives me crazy. And there's a lot of other versions of it, you know. And so how many articles today, this blows my mind, how is it news that the world is responding to some picture or some post, right? And so it'll say, the internet is going crazy about this tweet. When you read that article, do you ever find the metrics? 3,000 people have liked. It's never even mentioned, right? It's just self-promotion. It's self-referential. And the thing about self-reference as a measurement is it doesn't work. I'm as tall as I am, right? Or in the words of the, the old Willy Wonka, uh, I know I'm getting taller because now when I put my hat on my head, I can reach. It doesn't make any sense. So why do we do self-promotion? Why does this exist? To extend influence. And Paul recognizes that for people, now I want to be careful here because some of you may be involved in advertising and marketing. Letting people know a product exists is fine. Letting people know you exist is different. It's, it's a different thing. And we have to watch out here. I mentioned, I, I believe, last week, Luther's contrast between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And this really gets at the heart of what we're talking about. Here's what he said. He said, some folks have a view that I call a theology of glory, which means God is most glorified by me when I'm most glorious. So the more power I have, the more position, the more popularity, the more influence, the more opportunity I have, you know, to put the finger up in the air and point to Jesus. And so when I'm applauded, inherently through me is God is applauded. Okay. 
theology of the cross, Luther went on, he says, the problem with the theology of glory is the most God-glorifying moment in human history involves zero popularity, involves zero power. As Jesus hangs on the cross being the most obedient act, the most God-glorifying act, the great sacrificial act of the best proclamation of what worship is, all being personified there, and it is weak, it is despised, it is rejected, it is turned away from, it is mocked. And which one are we called to emulate? The disciples were all about emulating the crown of Jesus, right? Which one of us is greatest? We're going to go into Jerusalem, you're going to take a throne, which one of us gets to sit on the right and which one gets the left? None of us will take the center throne, that's for you, Jesus, but which gets the next throne in line? And how did Jesus respond? Oh, you don't understand why I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die, and anyone who seeks to follow me must take up his cross and follow me. There's a difference. There's a distinguishment here. And the thing about about self-promotion is it's incredibly easy to justify. And if Paul could recognize that in a first century world, before there was internet, before there was modern marketing campaigns, we just need to recognize need to recognize the danger for ourselves, okay, of saying, look, well, it's just, this is just how I reach people, you know, and I always laugh at these, but every once in a while I'll see an advertisement for another preacher or something like that, and it'll say something like, raw, real, and relevant, right? I just, we've got to watch out for this and, and recognize here that this isn't just a problem for preachers. That for some of us, we feel like the way that we can work in our own area of influence, and I know I'm I'm begging the question here, I'm a little bit cart before the horse because we haven't really talked about that. We feel like we need to paint ourselves in a particular way. We need to um, (coughs) display our credentials or flash our badge or something to earn a hearing. And once again, it's so close to that. I mean, we have to recognize, right, that the life we live biblically coincides with the validity of the message we carry. That's always true, okay? And so there is something to be said of recognizing that you witness with your life way before you open your mouth. That's absolutely true. But that's different than self-promotion. That's just authenticity. So the first thing they do is they commend themselves, they boast about themselves, but the second thing, and I, I want to read this with a slightly different translation. If you have the New King James, it's pretty close to what I'm going to read, uh, but there's a repetition you can miss in this verse just because the ESV is trying to annoyed, uh, or avoid the harshness of repetition on our ears. So listen to what Paul says in this next line. He says, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. That's what that sentence says. Okay. Now, I want you to think about this measure themselves by themselves in a couple of different ways. First off, I want you to think of an orchestra. Okay. What would it look like in an orchestra? Here's all the musicians, and they're trying to get in tune together, and they're all tuning to one another. That is a mistake. Okay. That's why we select a single instrument, and everybody tunes to this, because there has to be a standard. Okay. When, uh, when in the ancient world you used to go shopping, they would use weights and measures, right? 
Why didn't you just go, well, this feels like a pound to me and that feels like a pound to me, right? Because it's not reliable, it's not consistent. That's the way that comparison works in our own lives, okay? It doesn't. It just doesn't. I don't care if you share the same DNA with your twin and you live in the same house and work the same job. Comparison is a bridge too far. Here's what it's like. When we talk about mountains, we talk about two different measurements. One of them is elevation and the other is height and they are not synonymous, okay? So when you're driving over a mountain pass and you see the sign that shows the elevation, that shows how high you currently are, and if you're near the top of the mountain, it shows you how high the top of the mountain is. That does not tell you how tall the mountain is, right? Because the mountain's base may or may not begin at sea level. And so you can actually have a mountain that from its base to its top is taller than a mountain that's elevation is higher, and vice versa, okay? When we measure ourselves against one another, we're only looking at elevation. And so we say, oh man, I, I just deal with anger all the time. I'm such an angry person. And you know another person, it doesn't seem like they deal with anger at all. But you know nothing about the roots of that mountain, okay? Maybe you had an awful childhood, And this other person grew up in a place where anger just wasn't even a a misused, but wasn't a tool that was part of the toolkit. You know, um, things like emotional intelligence and where we are being shaped by our own context, these things matter. Not everybody starts following Jesus at the same place. And so when we compare ourselves... It's like we've got somebody who's running a 400-yard dash and another one who's running a 100-meter dash, uh, and we go, oh, man, that one is so much further ahead. You think? See, comparison doesn't work. But there's another reason why comparison doesn't work. Comparison doesn't work because the things that we think are important have very little to do with the things that God uses. Remember the complaints they make about Paul earlier in this chapter? He's not that great of a speaker. His presence is unimpressive. He doesn't have the dynamic rhetorician ability to move a crowd. I listen to him and I'm not stirred. But in actuality, not only is Paul doing that intentionally, he said, look, I knew you guys were so obsessed with the show and the glamour that I intentionally went the other way. Not only does he want to remove from that, but despite that, The power of God is active in Paul's life. When King Saul is on the throne, he's impressive. You read back on his history, and he's head and shoulders above the rest. This is actually where we get that saying, by the way. In that case, it means actually that he's just taller than your average Israelite. Okay? His head starts where their shoulders, or his shoulders start where their heads end. That's the idea. On top of that, he's from a war hero family. His father and his grandfather are significant heroes in the war, okay? On top of that, it tells us that he's incredibly handsome. Tall, dark, and handsome. That's Saul. He's exactly the king that Israel thinks they want, and he's not a good king. 
And so when God takes the throne from Saul and sends Samuel to anoint another king, he goes to the tribe of Jesse, some shepherds. And he says, bring me your sons. And Jesse, for some reason, he knows what's up. If the prophet's here and he wants to meet my sons, there's something good in it for me. And so he's rubbing his hands together and he's so excited and he says, meet my firstborn. And he hits all the marks just like Saul did. And Samuel thinks to himself, oh man, this guy is kingly. He's regal. And God speaks to him and he says, don't look at outward appearances because God judges the heart. And so he says, nope, not that guy. Then the next one and the next one goes through all six of his sons. And Samuel goes, is that it? And he goes, well, there's David. He's out in the fields, but I knew you wouldn't want him. And he's God's man. He's the king after God's own heart. He's the one who fills our Bible with songs and prayers that we still use today. He's the one who leads to the culmination of the glory days of Israel that he hands off to Solomon. And he's just a shepherd. Comparison doesn't make sense because it denies the sovereignty of God. If your friends, if your family members, if they need great Mr. Preacher number one, if they need world-renowned television evangelist, if they need my friend who's actually much better at these things than me, is God not capable of designing that? Listen, God is not playing checkers, he's playing chess. Do you understand the difference? When we compare, we equalize the playing field as if all God is doing is just jumping, moving across the board, and everything is equal except some of the pieces are chipped and broken. Some of them don't always make the jump and stumble. No. God is utilizing pawns and knights, not merely queens and kings. When it says in, uh, in another one of Paul's letters that God has laid out good works before you that you should walk in them, they're custom fit. Not only are they designed for you, but you're designed for them. And you need to recognize that actually this is exactly how influence works. Is it white teeth and a television spot that changes people's minds? Sometimes on laundry detergent. But in the real things that matter in life, influence is not that easy to diagnose. And relationship and closeness and time spent and actual heart, those things change the game. Right? And so you may stutter, you may stumble. Uh, the people who know you best may know the worst about you and you still have more influence with them than the most upright citizen on television. This is how influence really works. Comparison is toxic. It is. But it's also absolutely foolish. Because you're not sitting behind the chessboard, seeing the whole board, understanding the plan. You're in the midst of the front of the battle, trying to discern what's going on in your little piece of the field. Paul in his own ministry, and I think if, if you're a Christian and you look at Paul's ministry, it's impressive. Churches across the Roman Empire. You'd think he'd have a lot to pat himself on the back about. Now he's confident in his calling. He's confident in his role. 
But he says in the first letter to the Corinthians, he says, when it comes to my ministry, all that's required is faithfulness and I don't even judge myself. He says, it's up to the Lord. I don't know how significant my impact is. Okay? Now that gets us at the real heart of both self-promotion and comparison. It's not about influence at all. It's about self-justification. I am the greatest who ever lived doesn't get you a chance to get back in the boxing ring. It gives you significance. It deals with that little insecure hole in your heart that's constantly beating and going, is it enough? Is it insufficient? We have to watch out for the connection we naturally make between ego and opportunity. In comparison, whether you put yourself above other people and say, I am better suited. How could God give them an opportunity and leave me out of it? Or if you use it in the opposite way and just go, I can't do anything because I'm not this person or that person or the other. We, what we're really saying is, I'm the most important one and I'm either failing or succeeding. What we're really saying is, the meaning of my life is on the table and has to be demonstrated. This is why the gospel is so important. We're talking this morning about gospel influence. The only people who can rightly carry it are those who have received it. Maybe you've experienced this. You have someone in your life who's semi-hostile to Christianity and well-armed. And they ask you questions. And the way that you respond is not just giving a defense, but defensive. Could it be, could it be that what's really laying under the surface there is fears? What's really laying under the surface there is the need to be on the right side of the issue. Not just because salvation depends on it, but because you're the type of person who's always on the right side of the issue. These are how entangled these things are. And so up front, before we talk about influence, you have to disconnect from this idea that says the way that you achieve influence is by proclaiming yourself. What does Paul say? We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. You can't do both at the same time. You can't say, I'm the greatest, now let me tell you about a great, the greatest person. Even when you try to, you end up just talking about yourself. And at the same time, when we compare ourselves to one another, we miss out. We miss out on God, what God is doing and will do in us. Now, notice what he says in verse 13. He says, We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. Now, that word boasting, he's going to change. He's going to use it a lot in the next few chapters, but as he does, the meaning of it's going to shift. And ultimately, what Paul says is, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Okay? So we've got to be careful not to read it the way we would normally hear. Okay? Paul is not, uh, not a rapper who's, who's saying, okay, well, I'm only going to boast East Coast. I have nothing to do with West Coast. That's not what he's saying here. He's responding, he's coming up to their game, but he's changing the rules. And when he says, we will not boast beyond limits, that phrase there for beyond limits, he's referring to the racetrack. 
He's referring to the runners, okay? So in Corinth, they had like the runner-up to the Olympian Games, the Ithmus Games, okay, on the Ithmus Peninsula where Corinth is. And so he takes this metaphor right from something they've seen, and basically he says, stay in your lane. That's, that's the metaphor that he draws out here. We will not boast beyond limits. We will stay in the lane that God has given us, okay? He says, we'll boast only in the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even you. Now, I want you to notice that that area of influence is God assigned, okay? One of the reasons why comparison goes wrong is because God's given us each different jobs. The principles are the same. The tools he's given us are the same. The area is different. And Paul says, I'm not going to compare it to another area. I'm not going to seek to exert my influence out of the other area. And I'll speak to you personally. Things happen in the church nationally, locally, that make me very angry. And all the time, I want to just speak shout into the void of the internet, you know, write a blog or a letter or control at these things. But the truth is, I don't have that area of influence. And just because I can put something online and it's World Wide Web doesn't mean I should. And really, that anger that stems in me, sometimes there's some righteousness in it, but a lot of times there's ego. that says, if I, there, if I was there, it would be better. If I was involved, it would be fixed. If they listened to me, everything would be okay, which is nonsense. Okay. God has given me a small area of influence with you folks in this neighborhood, in this time, and in this place, and I can't look at other areas and go, I'm fit for the job. Even the Apostle Paul, who travels the world, uh, who writes parts of the Bible, who has, you know, the power of miracles, he recognizes in his own ministry there are limitations, and he seeks not to cross those lines. My only encouragement to you this morning is, have you even asked where the boundaries might be? Or do you just tunnel into things headlong, and you have an opinion on everything, and a criticism of everyone? That's how his opponents were. They show up in Paul's church with a fine-tooth comb and a magnifying glass, and they go, Let's see how Paul did. Now, this is ironic because as far as we know, these folks haven't actually done anything. So they don't have anything to compare with except by their own self-standards, their own metrics. But they don't even have another church. They're not even saying, okay, our church here, uh, you know, in, in the city of Rome versus your church. Let's see which one is bigger. Let's see which one is better. They have nothing but they're still capable of coming in that way and criticizing. But Paul says, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to tell you I'm the greatest apostle that ever lived. He says, let's talk context. Let's talk about you, Corinthian church. Because the criticism they were making is, Paul has no authority over you. You don't have to listen to Paul. So notice what he says in verse 14. We're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. He says, when we talk about our influence among you, you're not strangers to us. You're not a bridge too far. When he says overextending here, the idea is of reaching, okay? Reaching beyond your body. It's, it's an embodied expression of ambition. 
The way that I think of it is that scene that always happens at the poker table in television when somebody grabs all the chips, right? It's this motion. That's what overextending is here. Paul's basically saying, look, you're not up for grabs. We're not seeking to claim you. He didn't show up with a Paul-shaped flag and say, I claim this church in the name of Paul. That's not what happened. What happened was he came in, he proclaimed a gospel, people responded to it. And so notice what he says. He says, we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way down to you with the gospel of Christ. Hear the tone in that all the way down. Christianity begins in Jerusalem with this proclamation to go out into the ends of the earth. Paul was the first one to take it all the way to Corinth. He says, it's no small distance that I came. It's not like I was living next door. He's reminding them of the commitment and the heart and the purpose that went into it. But the big point is, Paul planned the church and these ones who want this power and this influence, they're just coming in seeking to take it over. He says in verse 15, we do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. He's taking a jab at his critics here. Here, they want to claim the Corinthian church as being another church that follows them, that believes them. But they haven't worked the ground. They didn't till the soil. Now, I want you to understand here, Paul is not being territorial. When you read 1 Corinthians, and when you read the book of Acts, you discover that after Paul leaves Corinth, a man named Apollos comes in, and Apollos is an impressive preacher. Okay? The Corinthians love Apollos. And Paul says, I don't have any beef with him. I planted Apollos waters, but God gives the increase. But Apollos didn't come in and say, let's call this the first church of Apollos. He didn't try and make converts of converts to their micro positions and these types of things. He came, like Paul, to serve the church. But these men have come in with self-interest. I see this in organizations sometimes. Organizations that are so busy making a name for themselves, what they do is just like an umbrella. They just reach out to things that are already existed, that are full of life, that are started by other people, and they just try and put their brand on them. Mine. Us. We. That's what's happening in Paul's church. And he says, I would... I wouldn't do that. In fact, listen to the difference that he says. They boast in a labor they didn't do. They want to come and claim a fully functioning church of people who have suddenly met Jesus through another person's ministry and say, look what we've done. They want to sit on the throne, you know, and say, behold the kingdom that I have built. And it's all nonsense, but notice the difference in Paul's heart. He says, we do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Okay. Now, two things here. First, we get a good idea of how influence works. He says, our hope is that through our influence in you, our influence will extend. In other words, our hope is as you lead people to Jesus, we'll be able to build up more people through your influence. There's a naturalness there, okay? Most of the time, the way God leads in opportunities is natural. It's not that God doesn't open miraculous doors. It's not that he doesn't send us to a completely different place or to a completely different thing. Those things happen. But usually the way God leads us in our life is through this natural 
path. Okay? And so it's not staking a claim in the name of Spain. Let me give you an illustration. If you feel like God is calling you to be a missionary to the other side of the world, you will recognize your mission now. You will be working it now. You may be a barista for Jesus. But most of the time, how you get from one place to another is that you're already in motion and one step at a time. Most of the time, the opportunities that are set before us Every once in a while, I meet somebody who's had some sort of Christian education. And they come in to a church like ours, and they don't say this aloud, but what their words say, the undertone of their words is, I'm here, I'm, I'm equipped, where's my ministry? I've got all this. Sometimes they'll, they'll come in and they basically say, hey, you know, can, can I do A, B, or C? And they're jumping all the way up the lines. They want to preach on Sundays, Okay. No, it's fine. But that's not how life actually works. Paul gets that. He understands influence. But here's the most important point. They're coming and taking pre-existing things and taking credit for them. Paul says he wants to get away from where anyone is working and start something new. This is how he puts it to the Romans. He says, I'm hoping when I come to Rome that you'll help me move on to Spain because I don't want to build on another man's foundation. All I want you to notice is the difference of heart there. This isn't about credit. This is about the work itself. Paul doesn't boast in the work of others, come in to stake a claim. He goes, Where, what's not being done? Who's not being reached? Who's not being talked to? And he says, okay, that's for me. It's a different heart. It's a different heart. He doesn't want to be known as the world's greatest missionary. He wants to be a missionary. It's a different thing. But on top of that, even the work that he's done, he doesn't boast in. He says, if we want to talk about influence, my heart is to go where I haven't done anything yet, where nobody's done anything yet, and then listen to what he says next. He says in verse 16, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of a work already done in another area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He doesn't boast in his own work. He doesn't say, I have the church in Corinth and it's mine by right. He completely changes the game. And in doing so, he quotes Jeremiah. Now, already we talked about how that's significant because he quoted it earlier in this chapter. It seems to me like Paul, as he's wrestling with this church in Corinth and how his ministry is going, he's reading the book of Jeremiah and he's finding solace in the fact that Jeremiah's ministry was a rough one. He was a rejected prophet unaccepted, without converts. Nobody responded to his message, and he was told that up front. This is how it's going to be. Faithfulness for him didn't look like thousands of converts or lots of money in the coffers or any of these things. It looked like prison and eventually being sawn in two. And so Paul seems to resonate with this. He's reading the book of Jeremiah, but not only is it significant for that reason, that Paul resonates with the whole book, But this is the second time he's quoted it to the church in Corinth. 
Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he quotes this same verse, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is what he's saying in the Corinthian church. He says effectively, look, you guys are really impressed with show and sparkle and you're embarrassed by me and you wish that there were more powerful preachers out there. And he says, but have you looked at your own selves? Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were rich. Not many of you were wealthy. And God saved you. And it's through the weak of the world and the foolish of the world that God will confound the powerful and the wealthy. He says, this is the way it's supposed to work. And then he quotes this, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, turn very quickly back to Jeremiah chapter 9. Look at verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. In the context of influence back in our chapter, this is effectively the chapter designations of how to win friends and influence people. Is it not? It's wit, it's power, it's wealth. He says instead, verse 24, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Okay. A couple of things. One, notice here in Jeremiah, it's not let him who boasts boast in what the Lord is doing, it's let him who boasts boast in knowing the Lord, having a relationship with the Lord. Jesus tells the same thing to his disciples. He sends them out into the area around where he's ministering. He says, go, I'm giving you the power to cast out demons, proclaim the coming of the kingdom, do these things, and they come back, and they're blown away by the fact that God has done such miraculous things through them. They're they're not going, I can't believe we're so great. They really understand how miraculous what's just happened is. And even there, Jesus says, "Don't, don't be joyful. Don't be excited about the fact that the demons respond to the name of Christ and shudder. He says, instead, be joyful that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, find joy in your own salvation, in your own relationship with God. That's the heart of it. But on top of that, on top of that, Paul seems to be drawing out this broader thing that everything that's happened in his ministry, he can't take the credit for. I already gave you that quote from 1 Corinthians. I sowed, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. In fact, he says in Romans chapter 15, talking about his own ministry. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. Here he's talking about witnesses of the resurrection. Talks about the twelve. He talks about those who were present at the ascension, and he gets to himself, and this is what he says. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's within me. So he looks at everything he's done. He says, I've worked hard. I've accomplished much, but it hasn't been me. It's been God's gift through me. Okay? He sees his whole work, and he says, if anyone's going to take credit for you, Corinthians, if anyone's going to be able to claim you as the byproduct of their power and work, it's going to be God. He sees his whole ministry in that light, okay? And so he shows the foolishness of their entire approach, not just that they want to boast in someone else's work, but they'd be content to boast in their own work if they weren't so lazy. And Paul says, I don't even boast in that. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now that can be a conviction. It can be critical of us this morning. It can recognize um, places where, where we need to conform But I want to point to something else it means. It means that you have everything you need for life and godliness. Let's go back to that idea of area of influence. Okay? I have an area of influence. It's God-given. But so do you. And there are people in your area of influence that I will never meet. That I will never get a chance to talk to. Billy Graham had a huge area of influence. But some of your family members have never heard the words of Billy Graham, and now that he's gone home to be the Lord, he probably won't. But if that person comes to the Lord, Billy may sow, you may merely water, but God gives the increase. We can feel so weighted down by this idea that we have a mission to do, but that's because we're still looking at our own resources and saying it's just not enough. Have you read the Bible? Eh, five loaves and two fishes, Lord. It's just not going to go the distance. We're, we're just a people of slaves. We don't even have any real weapons. We've taken our farming gear and turned it into weapons. That's the best we can do. But, but God, I'm the least of all people, the least of all families. But God, you've turned our army into 300 people and we're supposed to stand against all the Philistines? How many times does God have to repeat the cycle to prove to us that he wants to use us but he doesn't need us? He's fully self-sufficient. What he asks us to do is to be a conduit of his power and his grace. To use our weakness and demonstrate his strength. To take our stumbling words and use them to transform a life. Whitfield, a great preacher in the Second Great Awakening, he said, many people can preach better than me, but none of them can preach a better gospel. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you carry and convey the words of who Jesus is and what he's done, when you carry the self-same message that Paul carried here, that it is powerful in and of itself? Listen, you're not going to get to heaven and stand next to Billy Graham and God's going to go, which one of you did more? That's not how it works. What's required of a servant is faithfulness. The only metric of comparison God's going to use in your life is what he knew he could do through you and what you allowed him to do. No one's going to get the end of the life, end of their life, stand before God and say, God, look at all the things I did for you. That's why when we see in the book of Revelation, here's these 24 elders who are probably, whoever they are, the upper echelon 
of heaven citizens. And as soon as they see Jesus, they take these crowns that they have been given by Jesus and they cast them at his feet. They get it. They understand it. God hasn't just given you an area of influence. He's equipped you for it. And he's also given you a unique area of influence. And so one of my encouragements this morning would be absolutely stay in your lane. Have a little bit of discernment before you're quick to speak or to criticize or to jump in and get involved or to fly across the world to solve some other people's problems. But on the other side, on the other hand, be encouraged in the fact that God hasn't given you an impossible task, which is actually a misnomer. He has. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus says this. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? Some of us, that's the truth that we need to face up to this morning. We think we're overqualified for what God's given us to do, so we need his job too, or her job too. But for other of us, we need to remember what Jesus said, and he said, it is impossible with man, but it is possible with God, for all things are possible to God. God has given you a context. He's given you a family that's not my family. He's given you roommates that are not their roommate. He's put you in an office space. This is your ministry. This is your mission field. This is your area of influence. But he has also given you himself. And God hasn't... I'll tell you this story and we'll close here. I once heard a preacher say that... uh, that after Jesus has ascended, he got to heaven, and these angels came around, and they were patting Jesus on the back, and they were like, man, that was incredible. You went down there, and you were obedient, and you lived as a human being, and you died, and now you're resurrected. It's amazing. What happens next? And he says, well, my church goes and carries the message to the end of the world. And they go, that guy? Those people? Them? What's plan B? And Jesus looks the angel in the eye, and with a solemn face says, there is no plan B. I hate that story. It's total nonsense. Jesus didn't start this work and go, okay, let's see what you can do with that. Read the book of Acts. Don't call that the book of the Acts of the the Apostles. If you want the full title of that book, it's the book of the Acts of Jesus Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit in the Apostles who he sent out. That's why Luke begins the, uh, the book with this introduction. The former work I wrote to you, Theophilus, of the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Now I'm writing you the current work, which continues the works of Jesus Christ. Okay. You may not have power. You may not have any positions of authority. You may not know any wheelers or dealers or game changers or influencers or politicians or any of these things. But God has custom designed your life to be a witness for him. And even there, we got to be careful. Do you know how Charles Spurgeon, who preached before 10,000 people a week, became a Christian? He was feeling really down to the degree that he's like, I need to go to a church. He wasn't a Christian. It was a snowstorm. He got to the church. The pastor didn't even make it. That's how bad the snow was. 
And some random guy who just saw the pulpit was open, stammered his way through a message. And halfway through the message, he pointed to Spurgeon and he said, you there, do you know Jesus? And that's where he met him. What about D.L. Moody, who in his day may have been seen by every adult American during the Civil War? Remember, this is pre-television. He was heard by almost the entire nation. He was a Sunday school teacher. Norman Geisler, modern apologist, has written books and spoken all over the world. He went to church at his local church for eight years as a teenager before he gave himself to Jesus. Do you know how he got there every day? Some bus driver who just volunteered to pick up kids who wanted to come to church. For eight years, he picked Norm Geisler up before Norm responded to the Lord. Do you think any of those guys went, this is the place, this is the power, this is where everything happens? You're just a piece on the chessboard. Just play the game in front of you. Stay in your lane and believe in the power of God. Let's pray. God, we may not have the eloquence of some of our favorite Christian speakers, but we have the Holy Spirit that you promised who would give us words to speak when they were needed. We may not have the, the power of position that you've given some, like Wilberforce, but we have the power of your word which does not return void but accomplishes what you mean to. And we may feel like we've been given a small field, but that field is a gift from you. It's custom fit. And so I pray, Lord, that we would seek to be faithful. God, help us not to be like a foolish runner who's so busy looking at how the other people are running, he's veering off course, slowing down. I pray, Lord, that you'd bring us to the place where we could say at the end of our lives, like Paul, I fought the fight, I ran the race, and I'm ready to cross the finish line. Protect us, Lord, as a church from comparison and the foolishness of using one another as a metric. And help us to bite our tongues in self-promotion. Acquaint us, Lord, with the reality of the gospel that despite the worst of who we know we are, the weakness of who we are, we are those who Christ died for. That our significance is found in his significance. That the meaning of our life is bound up in his life. And so we don't need to prove our worth or perform for crowds, Lord. We live our life as an act of worship before an audience of one. Help us to do these things in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.